Um, so maybe about a year ago, I was able to sit down with a pastor and, uh, you know, we were just having dinner and just talking about what was happening in our lives and what was going on. And, uh, you know, at this time, he was a little bit visibly frustrated about the things that were happening. And he shared to me some of the concerns that he had as his church was choosing and deciding on uh, church planters that they would be bringing out into the field. And what frustrated him a lot was the kind of people that were being chosen. And he, and he described a little bit about what he was going through. So he talked about his denomination was very, um, uh, very proactive in searching out specific kinds of people who, these kind of people were very young and very idealistic, uh, people who went out with great enthusiasm and hope. And they were looking specifically for people that were certain that God would add to their number daily, much like we see in the book of Acts. Now, what frustrated or worried this pastor friend of mine was that when he started to ask questions about how did they understand what was going to be happening to them? Did they fully understand the real issues or dangers that would occur? Did they know how to apply wisdom in situations? Many of them had not thought through that far and really didn't factor in that there would be challenges along the way. Now, being idealistic or being young, uh, these are not bad things themselves. But the issue that frustrated my friend was that these people really hadn't really thought through what did the Bible actually have to say about what this outreach to these local communities or into the world is like. Rather yet, these men actually fantasized about starting their own megachurches and then being the center of attention at their churches. And worse yet, that these men valued fire more than they valued faithfulness as the core characteristic of what it means to, to go out into the world, to be a missionary, to be a planter. And I think this is a, this is a huge, uh, this is actually in my mind and also in his mind, what actually caused many of these men to fail at church planting. And he saw number, a number of them, a number of young men who were very similar in their passion and their desire fail at church planting because they were burnt out in the end. They didn't know how to deal with these real life issues, how to deal with opposition. They really hadn't thought through what the Bible really had to say about these different issues that occur when we go out into the world. Now, as we continue to dialogue a little bit more about these topics, what we came to realize was we actually face, we actually face two extremes in this world today. One where there are people that are very, maybe a little too naive as they go out into the world um, and they don't really haven't really thought through that there are these difficulties that they're gonna experience and how to deal with them and how all the things in the scriptures work together to help them to face these challenges. But then there was the kind of the second extreme, and maybe this is the one that for us who are not planters, who are not missionaries, might, um, might understand better or might uh, be more connected to, is that maybe we might be a little bit too overly pessimistic about what God is doing. That we don't think that God is going to act when we share, that the message that we, that we give doesn't matter. And if the God is ultimately sovereign over the entire world, it doesn't matter what we do. You know, God is going to do all the work. Nothing really matters. And even if it did matter, by our own power, nothing is going to happen. Now, for us as the church today, we have to be wary of these two extremes. We have to be wary of the extreme of, uh, of, of being too naive going into the world. But we also have to 
be very careful in my mind of the extreme that nothing is going to happen, that God is not working at all. And I think this is the core message that we think about today as we read through this passage, that God is calling us, if we're looking to be a missionally, a missionally minded church, that we have to have a balanced view of what we are called to do. And that what we're called to do is that, and this is kind of the core idea and the main message of the passage this morning, is as we look to fulfill the mission of the church, we're going to experience opposition. But this should not deter us because our message is God's good news to the world. Again, the main message of today's sermon is that as we look to fulfill the mission of the church, we are going to experience opposition. But this should not deter us because our message is God's good news to the world. Now, in our passage this morning, we begin in a very odd place because up to this point, as we, as if you've read through the Old Testament and through the Gospels, everything is centered around the people, the ethnic people of God and the land that they own. All things are happening, uh, or all God's work is happening to the ethnic Israel people and in the land of Israel and Jerusalem itself. But something is uniquely different here now. Something is about to significantly change. Because in this new phase of God's work, the focus now moves from the geographic center is no longer Israel or Jerusalem. And the focus is no longer on the Jewish people. But God's new plan of salvation now moves to Antioch and to the Gentiles. And this is really what we see. This, this really amazing thing that we see is that the church is, is now here in, in, in Antioch, which is ancient Syria. This is the, the first Gentile church to be born out of the mission. This is the ground zero of God's mission to the Gentile church. And we see God working powerfully through this church and through its people. We are introduced to some of the teachers and prophets, or the teachers and prophets of this church in Antioch. We meet Simeon and Lucius, both who are from African nations, Menaean, who was an upper-class citizen because he was friends with Herod, and we also meet Barnabas, who's, who's Jewish, and Saul, who's formerly, formerly a religious Jewish elite. Isn't this amazing? We have this church that is now uh, created or, or uh, created or has uh, of people of of different uh, of dif different races, of people who come from different uh, social and economic backgrounds, all coming together, all coming to worship, and we can fully see God is at work in this church because of the way that He has gifted it. Luke, who is the author of Acts, tells us that this church has teachers and prophets. And if we've read through the Gospels, we've, we've noticed that these are giftings, uh, in, uh, giftings that God has given to Jewish Christians in the past. And now these giftings we now see are at work in the Gentiles too. That together, Jew and Gentile together, are teachers and prophets in the church of Antioch. And these are the true prophets, the true teachers of the Lord, ones who have, uh, who are able to uh, adequately speak God's word to, pe to people, to, to explain the word, to, uh, to tell people about what God is like, and to express to them the mission that is God's. 
Another amazing thing is this is the beginning of the fulfillment of what we had read in uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says that the these disciples were to be witnesses to God through all through through all, to the ends of the earth. And now we're starting to see people come to God from the ends of the earth. Now, if if you've gone through our the book of Isaiah with us last year in our CE class, you remember how this, this theme was actually quite dominant in the teaching of Isaiah, that not only was Israel to experience or to have a savior, but the savior would rally the Gentiles to God. One example, let me give you right here is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, where it says, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the Gentile nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we see here in Antioch. We see the beginning or the assembling of God's church here in Antioch. And it's in a wonderful sight to behold because God's mission is moving and changing and evolving. And we're, we're now entering into the phase where we're starting to see the fruit of this mission come forward with Gentiles now entering the fold. Now, but just because the Gentiles are now assembling together and we're now forming the church, it doesn't mean that the mission has concluded. In fact, uh, in fact, instead, we're actually told that the mission is not concluded. And here, God now calls out two people specifically for mission. And he calls out Barnabas and Saul to go out on this mission. And this is what it says in verse 2 and 3, that it says, um, While we were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Um, I think there's a, a number of important things that we need to see here with the calling of Saul and Barnabas. We often think of our callings as individual, but in the New Testament, our callings are actually to work together with those in the church, and we in the church confirm each other's calling. And I think it would have been easy for God if he just kind of, uh, as kind of Saul and Barnabas are traveling on their own, to tell them that they do these things. But he specifically does this in the context of the church family, that he calls them to this specific mission. And this is important for us today because we need to recognize that missions and church are interconnected with one another that the church has a mission, and they also prepare people from the mission, and people go out from this mission as well. Saul and Barnabas are, are then, are, are, we're, we're told, are actually ones who come out from this church of Antioch then. And we actually see this connection in the way in which the church addresses Saul and Barnabas by laying on their hands. Now, this idea of laying on hands really is just a representation uh, or symbolizes a connection of them, the people, the prophets and teachers of Antioch, or the Church of Antioch, to these missionaries of Saul and Barnabas. And so here a connection is being built that God is sending out these two people from the Church of Antioch with the blessing of the leadership, which are teachers and prophets of the church. This is a, a common connection that we often see um, in, in the church today, and maybe one that we often thought about. Uh, we, there, are, there are lots of different, in, unfortunately in our world today, there are lots of different missions efforts in our world today that are unconnected with the church. In fact, there were times when um, I would talk to people who would be doing street missions, and many of them, or some of them actually were not connected with any church because they thought they all were apostate. And this is a sad reality because these two things are, are meant to be connected. 
right? Church and missions are meant to be connected hand in hand, that out of mission, out of, out of the church should flow missions and missionaries, and they just don't crop up on their own, right? That they're interconnected. And this is something that is very important in the message of the book of Acts. I think it's also important to notice the kind of missionaries that God is calling, or the kind of people that God is calling to the mission here. And specifically, he is calling Saul and Barnabas to this mission. Now, Saul and Barnabas are not idealistic or people who have grand visions of what they're going to accomplish. What marks missionaries, what marks Barnabas and Saul as missionaries, I think, is faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. And people who specifically are, who accurately and thoughtfully handle God's word. And this is really the kind of people that God has called to the mission. Um, you know, when Pastor Kevin arrived here, one of the first things that I saw him do was there were a number of people that had come to him and expressed to him that they wanted to go on missions. And one of the first things that I saw him do was to get them to be better acquainted with the scriptures, to get them to be better reliant and more faithful to the causes of God and to be the into different ministries, because this is something that I saw that was very important to him. And I think this is right, because as we look at the book of Acts, and as we have just said, this marker of faithfulness should be the thing that marks Christians to the mission field. And the reason being why it should mark us is because going on missions is not one in which we can run on just passion or, or the fire of, of our conviction alone. It's one where, where we are, need to be continually reliant on God to do missions. Missions, missions is often an, an intense place to be where people have to make hard choices um, of, of how to form the church, of how to delegate and deal with people and deal with different cultures. And that's just on the, the surface of dealing with people. That doesn't even speak to the problem that while on the mission people, many missionaries experience intense spiritual warfare as they are trying to win people to Christ. They're trying to uh, preach the gospel openly. And then there is this kind of this worldly, evil worldly power that works against them that they have to deal with in their own souls and in the conflicts that they're in. And people who are unaware or, or maybe not wise to the scriptures or wise to salvation as of yet are easily fall astray or led astray because of these different things. They're easily overwhelmed because of, of the way in which Satan acts against them. And if passion is the only thing that they have, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be overcome by Satan's guile and, and the, the power in which it has. What missions needs or what people who are faithful to missions needs is faithfulness. To me, this is the only way in my mind that people can get through these difficult and dark times to, to really to be um, invested in these causes, even though they don't see a ton of fruit right away. And ultimately, in my mind, is what will make people successful is continually work, the kind of the perseverance at the work of being missions, not because that we ourselves are great, because, but we were faithful to God and knowing that he is great and that he is going to work. So as we kind of look at these people who are called, we see the sending of Saul and Barnabas, and this really gives us some details about how the church is connected to missions, but also something of the people that should be, that, that, we, that should be called to missions in the mission field. Now in this next section, going from verses four all the way down to verse 12, we now see, we kind of see what this mission is actually like 
for Barnabas and Saul, who is now called Paul, and John Mark, who, they, who takes with them, what is this now? What is this mission now like? And what we see, or what Luke writes, is that this mission is now uh, one in which we see that there's opposition to these missionaries, and one in which they will face as they progressively spread the gospel throughout the ends of the earth. Now, the first place in which Barnabas and Saul end up going to is an island that is just west of Syria called Cyprus. Uh, it's not that it's not really that far away, at least on the map. It doesn't look that far away. You just go due west, and then you there's there's usually a port there. And right going a little bit further west than that, there is this tiny island called Cyprus that is just like I said, west of uh, Syria. And so as they they go there, they, they they the first place they end up going to is the synagogue, which is again not abnormal for the mission of the apostles. Uh, oftentimes throughout their journeys to different lands, different places, the place that they would start at are these different synagogues. But it also tells us that the mission, even though Barnabas and Saul have been set out for the Gentiles, it, it means that their mission is not has not been completely removed to that of their own kinsmen, which are the Jewish people. In fact, they still preach the gospel there. It just means that their mission has been enlarged. And we see that as uh, as Barnabas and, and Paul go out throughout this island of Cyprus um, and they, they continue to preach the gospel wherever they go. And finally, this opportunity comes where they meet the proconsul and he asks him to come to his place. But this is also the place in which we actually see uh, this opposition in which they face for the first time as Barnabas and Saul are being called. This is the first opposition which they face with this new mission. And this is what Luke has to say about what this, this person who is going to oppose them is like. From verses 6 to 8, it says, They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intellect who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, when we look at this picture here, what Luke is actually doing is he is setting up this representation of uh, the true prophets of God against the representation of the false prophets of Satan. This character of Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus, is, is said to be an Israelite, but from the, the description that we're given, we actually can see that he's actually far off the beaten path of what it means to be a true Israelite. It speaks of him as one who is doing, who is a magician. And if, if you know anything about the Old Testament, this idea of practicing magic was expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. So clearly we can see here that this Bar-Jesus or Elimus is one who is not the, the usual uh, Jewish Israelite that we would we would see, but one who's actually quite uh, who has quite aberrant beliefs or faiths that are quite different from the world. Now, again, these things of magic are kind of connected to this idea of, of Satan and the world. Uh, so, again, illustrating that he is in opposition to Luke and and Barnabas themselves. But also, something that we see is that this 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 person is named Bar Jesus or Elias. And this actually points to a number of different things. This, this term, bar Jesus, either, either means son of Jesus or son of salvation. Now, it could be that the reason why he named himself this is because he shows himself to be connected to the way or the Christian faith, that he is a son of Jesus. And so this is why he can do magic. He can do these miraculous things like Jesus did. But maybe, maybe more likely, 
that he actually expressed or showed himself to be one who knew the true way to God, the true way to salvation, which is, again, another meaning to his name. This is probably why Luke actually calls him a false prophet, because he actually did not show people the true way to God, but actually showed them the false way to God. And in, in every way that we can think of Eliamus or Bar-Jesus here, he is antithetical to the true prophets of God. Where the true prophets are true or real, we have Bar-Jesus who is false. Uh, where we see that these are the sons of God or the prophets of God. Uh, Eliamus is a son of Satan. But also in the fact that in, in, in the way that the, the prophets bring the true message of salvation, Bar-Jesus actually gives them a, the false way of salvation or the false way to God. And so, again, Luke here is trying to paint this picture that there is this, um, this epic showdown between these two great powers, between the true sons of God and their message and Satan and his children and their message. Now, for us today, as we think about this topic, we too are represented in the story. And I think, firstly, we're represented to know that we too are in this conflict with the world, just as Barnabas and Saul and, and John Mark are. And this is something that we shouldn't be uninformed about, because as we go out into the world, as we live out our faith, and as we call other missionaries to go into the world, what we too will experience is opposition in the world. The Bible doesn't, doesn't want us to be uninformed about this idea. In fact, it's often telling us about the difficulty as we live in the world, that this world is still under the power of Satan, that it's still, that, that though Christ has finally or ultimately won the fight, Satan and evil has not finally been defeated as of yet. And this is why it is, is such an important thing, right? That this warning for us is not to be naive about what we're going to face as we go out into the world today. Now, like I said, you and I may never be actually be missionaries. Maybe you and I are probably not going to be called to be missionaries. But we, too, have a calling in, in part of this mission. And though we are not going to be missionaries, we're still called to share this message. Throughout the Bible, we are actually told that we are to be ambassadors for Christ, that we are called to give a defense for the hope that we have. So we share in this mission, not that we are going to go out to a foreign country and be missionaries, but rather in our local setting, we are called to speak truthfully of the message that we believe. So we too should be ready for this opposition. We too should be ready to know that we face these difficulties in the world. So this begs the first question for us then, because we talked about these missionaries who are naive and who, who are idealistic, who go into the world and are unready for the, the rigors of what they're become. But if you and I are also called to be part of this mission, to live in this world, do we go out into the world today as we live our lives with this same mindset day to day that we are going to face opposition for our sharing? And are we ready with the gospel to be shared? It's very easy for us, I think, to, um, to puff our chests out, to say, man, these, these, these kids who are out there who are planning churches or who are going into the mission field, they're so, they're so like, they, they so don't know what they're going to get into, so childish, they haven't really thought it through. Now, that's them. But, but how about us? We have this similar calling about going out into the world as well. We too have a message, and this message is similar to theirs, where we 
uh, that the entire world are, are we're all in sin that we're all under the realm of darkness that we all do not know christ we all live to the passions of our flesh and what we all need to hear this is something both missionary and we ourselves need to know or both need to preach is we need to hear and believe and look to christ to be saved but are we also going to our own personal situations in life with the same mindset that we are going to face these difficulties if we're going to be faithful to God's word? I think that um, maybe, maybe for many of us, we're actually terrified to give the message because we fear um, the, the persecution or suffering that comes, but we also fear opposition. And this is something that I think that many of us are not unaware of. I remember even when uh, being a young Christian that I, I remember that there was this, this tension that I felt as a young Christian, right? Number one, I didn't want to experience opposition from my friends. I didn't want to offend or push anyone away who I was a friend with. I didn't want them to have anything that they were, they had a heart against me. I didn't want them to yell at me or scream at me or oppose me to my face. But at the same time, in my soul, I felt this inclination, this compelling feeling that I need to go and share with them this good news. Because one, it is, is born out of faithfulness to God, but two, they have to hear it. They need to hear this message. And I want to share that all Christians, I think throughout Christian history, um, apologists, great and small alike, all Christians have faced or experienced this fear, this worry, this doubt. So this is not a unique feeling in the world. In fact, I think the scriptures themselves speak to this idea so often that they know that we are weak, that we're feeble, that we're scared, that we go through so much opposition. And this is why the common thing or the common idea that the gospel writers and the Old Testament speaks about when we go through trials and difficulties or there's death ahead of us or opposition ahead of us, it continues to tell us to stand firm, to stand on God's strength, to be strong, to be courageous. And this idea of having or to, to have to be strong in the Lord or take courage really is not this idea to just really be strong in yourself or to take courage in yourself, but rather that your calling is to be strong in the Lord. Take strength from knowing that God is with you, to know that He is strengthening your body, your mind, your boldness, your heart, and to take courage to know that your God reigns, that He is already in control. This is a common calling or a common um, encouragement that the writers of the Bible give to God's people because he knows our, our, our issues that we have, the plight that we have in doing these things. And so he calls us to stand on these things. What he's telling us to do is really to rely on God's power to be strong and to courageous as we enter into the world and as we face it. You know, there is a common story uh, that we often, there's a common story that um, of, of uh, this great preacher by, by the name of Charles Spurgeon, that even for him, who is the, he was considered the greatest preacher maybe of all time, he's known that as he ascended the steps to go preach every single week, multiple times, every step he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And again, the idea is not that he was afraid of what was going to happen, but the realization that he was fully dependent on God, the Holy Spirit, to work and to give life to his hearers. 
This is the this is what faithfulness looks like. It is this dependence upon God in all things. It should be true of missionaries as we are, we call them out of the church, but it also should be true of ourselves who are also looking to be the ambassadors for Christ in the world. I think the, the very last thing I want to say about this idea of missionaries is that these are the missionaries that we are to call, but as God calls these people out into the world, that we need to be honest and free to let them go. If people have a true and real calling of the Lord, one in which we as the church discern is real of them, we shouldn't hold them back and try to fill up their, um, hold them back and try to fill up their, uh, their time and space so they can't go on a mission field or prepare for it. But we really should be preparing them as a church to go for the mission field. Now, this isn't to say that we can't do, like I said, do preparation for them and help them to prepare and ready them for that field. What, I'm, what, I, what I am saying is that we should not be trying to bar them or be fearful that, hey, if they leave, there's going to be less talent or less skill here or people working in the church, so we can't let them go. No, if God calls them, then we as a church need to respond by preparing them and then ultimately letting them go to where God has called them to go. Now it's difficult, as I said before, to be on this mission field, to be an ambassador for Christ, to speak this message, message of the gospel. And I know, like I said before, this fear was very true for me. And how I started to deal with much of this fear and to take courage was I actually started in probably the, the most, uh, in my mind, the most cowardly way, but the, the way in which I thought easiest way in which I could uh, start at least to begin this process of going out to be an ambassador. I started to go out into these um, these Christian forums or these very small forums where, uh, again, I had the I had the protection of, of being anonymous. I didn't have to see a person face to face, but at least there, I actually was able to share my faith, to dialogue with people, to go through opposition, and I can. And the great thing is, I can come back to the opposition and, and have an open mind about what to say and what to do. This really gave me a chance to really step out in faith to really practice this calling of being this ambassador for Christ. And what really marked this time for me was not so much my ability to do something, but how much I relied on God so often to, to shape my message, to, uh, to awaken the heroes of this person I'm having this dialogue with that I didn't see a face to, and ultimately gave me more and more courage and more and more uh, to, to trust more and more, to be, to be stronger and stronger in the Lord as I saw him working in me. And what I, what I began to realize was that I was becoming more and more convinced that wherever I would share, God was close by. Now, there's also going to be this idea of opposition as we go. And this opposition we face is going to be not just the people which we deal with, but it's going to be these people who are actively trying to sabotage the message and being on these different boards. You actually saw these people who just kind of make jokes, weren't very serious. They tried to tear you down. Um, they wouldn't even come after your message sometimes. They would just come after you as a person. Um, there was at least one person in the church who shared the story that they would go out and, and share on the corner, and he got there was this this uh, this this drink that someone had was was driving past. And they threw this drink at him. And, and what I found is that as we go into the world, we actually will face opposition, much like Paul or Saul uh, and Barnabas and John uh, John, uh, John Mark does, as they kind of experience this um, opposition. 
And this opposition can actually take on multiple forms. It could be soft-spoken. It could be in your face. Um, it could be very hard or it could sound very hard or targeted against you uh, or it could sound very soft. But these specific things, these opposition, this opposition which we face are not things that should deter us from the message. And I think that when we are opposed, our responsibility is to the best of our ability to give a response to this person. Just as Paul responds here to, uh, 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 to Elimus or to Bar-Jesus, this is the way that Paul responds here. So verses 9, uh, 9 says this, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, uh, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see until the sun, until you see the sun for a time. Now, I, I, I feel a bit differently than a lot of other commentators, little Christians, that I think there needs to be a balance in a world of both a soft hand and a hard hand of, of uh, how we need to preach the message. Um, that, that I think we need both, much like when Jesus and John both coexisted, uh, one, one played the flute and one sang a dirge. Um, and the idea was both of these were good things, that the, the kind of the diversity of message uh, was a good thing in, in, in preaching the gospel, the way they at least they preached it. I would say, however, though, that for most of us, we need to be very careful to um, to preach the gospel or to send judgment this way. Many of us are too easily too prone to be angry and not righteous. Many too prone to be um, maybe to be to be um, to be hard and harsh, rather than to be balanced and and really to be zealous. Um, so I would say for most people, this is probably not the correct way to approach people. But what we should be doing is we really should be discerning what God, the Holy Spirit is telling us and how he's guiding us to speak. Because this is what we see here. This entire message that Paul speaks is one that is fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, one that is unique to him and unique to their situation. So this is not, in my mind, the uh, kind of the ideal way in which we address all these issues. But specifically, it is more a description of how God has worked in Paul to condemn uh, Barges or Limus. Now, what he does here, or what Paul does here, is he condemns, like I said, Limus for what he or who he really is. He says he's the son of Satan, an enemy of true righteousness, a person who is full of deceit and villainy and making the paths of the Lord crooked. Now, this confrontation here is the confrontation or tale of two prophets, like I said, the true prophets of God versus the, the false prophet of Satan. And this confrontation really should give us more confidence in our, in our opposition or how we deal with opposition. Because what we see from this passage, firstly, is that God is in control and is victorious over Satan. Now, the way in which Elimus is actually crooked is kind of the same way in which we think of when we're tourists, right? Imagine, so we actually have this common idea or thinking that when tourists go around and they're looking for, uh, you know, how to get to the different places, they start to turn to people and ask them, hey, I'm looking for the CN Tower, right? Where can I go? How can I, what path can I take to get to the CN Tower? And Elimus is kind of like that person you ask who has no idea where the CN Tower is, but will tell you uh, a false direction because he doesn't he, just, he doesn't want to seem like he's he's wrong, right? Or he wants to show that he knows something about the city. So he says, take a left, take a right, and then take two lefts. 
And ultimately, it leads the person not to the scene tower, but maybe he leads them to Mississauga instead, right? It's a completely different path from where they need to go. Eliamis is like this, where basically he tells other people, even though they're looking, they may be looking for a way for salvation, much like Sergius Paulus was, he doesn't tell them the correct way to get there. And this is why Paul condemns him as one who's making the path to the Lord crooked. So the condemnation that Paul now sets against Elimus is he actually supernaturally blinds him. Now, this is what this blindness signifies. It is the inward reality of what is actually happens to Elimus. So inwardly in his spiritual state, Elimus is actually blind to the truth of God. And this blindness has now been manifest in a physical form that he actually has physical blindness. Now, if you remember, Saul, or Paul actually had a similar blindness and for him, the scales were removed, showing that he once was blind and now sees. But this is actually not true of Elimus or Bar-Jesus, that he still is in his sin. He still is blind. Now, what this story should tell us is the kind of God in which we deal with as we face up against opposition in the world. That we have a God who is fully in control of the entire world, that the, that the agents of Satan or the sons of Satan are judged, are, are ones who are, are not, or basically don't have a power that can overcome God, but God can overcome them. And Satan doesn't have the ability to do that to the sons of God, right? The true messengers or ambassadors of God he had does not have this power over us that he can overcome us unless God allows him to do that. Everything is within God's power. Everything is within God's control. So this should give us much hope as we face opposition in the world, because our God is in control of all things, especially even in opposition. But secondly, we actually begin to see this realization that Christ is one who is defeating or overcoming evil powers. He has already had victory over them. And as we can see, he here defeats Elimus and he overcomes his evil powers by, by, by bringing judgment upon him. And this is a, a true reality which Christians have already seen and known, which Jesus already won on our behalf, that he is victorious over sin and death, ultimately. And we're ultimately awaiting for Christ to uh, take full possession of all that he has won. But these are things that should give us hope in our opposition, that our God is in control and he is victorious over these things already. And we see in the story of, uh, of Paul and, and Elimus and Barnabas and John, the, uh, and John, the, uh, John, John Mark. But maybe one last thing. And one last thing that should be the reason why we should face this opposition so fully is because our message is the only one that saves. As we said before, the message that the prophets of the Lord bring is a message of salvation, the pathway to the Lord, one in which Eliamis is actually trying to malign, one in which he's trying to make crooked for other people like Sergius Paulus. He's trying to malign this road so he doesn't actually follow the true way. But it really is us and the missionaries and the people of the church, the church itself, that has the true salvation that all people need to hear. And this is why we should be so bold with it, because our message is so important to the listeners, because it's the only way that anyone, anywhere, at any time, can truly be saved by God. This is why, as we look at Paul and Barnabas, they're willing to face this opposition, to be faithful to God so that they can deliver this message to all the people to the ends of the earth. And we actually see the fruit of this in the life of Sergius Paulus, in the way that he responds. 
In verse 12, it says, then the proconsul believed what he saw, what had occurred, but he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I want us to notice something here, that it's not really the, this, this, this kind of interchange of miracles that actually, um, that actually brings, Serge, uh, brings uh, the, uh, the proconsul Sergius Paulus to salvation. But him being an intelligent man, he actually perceived the truth from the miracle uh, that it's really the truth of the message that actually brings him to salvation. It wasn't the miracle that saves. It's the message of the gospel that saves and needs to be believed. And this is the message in which Sergius Paulus, him and his family, both believe and are saved by. And this is the, really the reason in which why we should be willing to face persecution, because our God has called us to be his witnesses, either as missionaries going out into the far world or to be ambassadors for him now, that we are willing to be obedient to Christ because we are drawing people to him now. And this is the message that people must hear. And this message saves people like the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, if you think the story is a myth or a legend or an event, what is amazing about this event is we actually have a historical inscription that was found. Sir William Ramsey, who was a Christian archeologist, uh, did a lot of work in uncovering a lot of amazing historical events uh, that we actually could tie to real, uh, to, we could tie these real events in history to these events that are written in the scriptures. And uh, Sir William Ramsey actually was able to uncover a lot of these things because he believed in the truth of the gospel. And that's actually something that actually led him to faith. And something that he found in Cyprus was he actually found the inscription written about Sergius Paulus that said, that talked about Sergius Paulus and his entire family became Christians. Isn't this amazing for you? Isn't this wonderful that our message has this power to change lives in such great ways that God has in, in really entrusted us and has really, um, has really allowed us to take part in his mission in such an amazing way. But I, th I think for us, the fear is that we are so afraid of being wrong, so afraid of being corrected. Uh, we are so afraid of, 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 of going through opposition that we actually don't want to do anything at all. Uh, maybe uh, another way to put it is that, you know, you, you never fail if you never try. But my, my fellow brothers and sisters, nothing in life, even in the human sense, is gained this way. You know, nothing, there's nothing gained if there's nothing, nothing you have to, there's nothing you have to give up, right? Um, and so this requires us to actually to, to, to do something about it, to, to act, right? Um, and, and I think that as we talk about this idea of, of acting, this is something that's really important. Now, this moves us back, I think, to the conclusion for today. And I'm going to reiterate the main message of today's sermon that as we look to fulfill our mission, we are gonna face opposition, but we should do this and not be deterred because our message is God's good news to the world. Now, like I said, there are many things that hold us back from being faithful, from sharing the message of faith, to being faithful in our own lives, as missionaries, as ambassadors, many reasons why we fail, but I think one of them is that it's a scary business to go into the world with the message of the gospel. But I want to encourage all of us here that to be, uh, to share in this mission is an application of our faith. That as we say that we believe in God, 
this is a way in which we show that we have true belief, that we have faith in God and his victory in every sense of the word, that he really is with us as we labor and that our labors are not in vain. And this is why Christians must take it seriously because it is a calling that God has, not just for those who go out into the world that are missionaries, but for all of us who are called in Christ to take part in the mission of God, the Missio Dei. And if you struggle like I struggled, then I want to encourage you to continue to cast your fears upon Christ and upon God and to trust in the Holy Spirit to work, to look to God to be strong and courageous, and to take little steps towards being missional until we can take bigger ones. So that's my encouragement to you today as you listen to the sermon to, to fully embrace the mission of God in your life, no matter what your calling actually is. And to know that these things will happen, but your God reigns and he loves you and he is with you wherever you may go. So trust him, be strong, be courageous, and go as God has called us to go. Let's pray.